0: This is a daily wildcat production. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to another episode of Wildcat Crime, the monthly podcast dedicated to taking a closer look at some of the most infamous crimes to occur at the University of Arizona and within the Wildcat community, brought to you by the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio. My name is Vanessa Ontiveros, and I'll be your host. You may have noticed that there was no warning at the top of today's show. That's because this episode will be our first foray into exploring crime other than murder on the show. And technically, Season 1, Episode 3 featured a fake murder, but we will not be discussing anything gruesome in that sense today. The world of true crime is vast and varied, and the subject of this episode definitely still qualifies as an infamous UA crime. Oscar Wilde's 1890 novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, gets its name from an enchanted portrait originally painted of the young and beautiful Dorian Gray. Now, spoiler alert for a novel that's over 100 years old, but Dorian wishes to remain youthful and attractive for all time, and he gets his wish. But as he continues to live, young and beautiful as ever, the portrait ages, showing Dorian as he truly would be. So he keeps it locked away a hidden reminder of his moral corruption, whose existence torments him day after day after day. I'm a person who likes keepsakes. I tape movie ticket stubs and old photographs to my walls. I have a stash of every daily Wildcat edition I've ever worked on. I still have my old notebooks from elementary school. And one day, I'll settle down and get a nice scrapbooking habit started. This might be why I've always been fascinated by people who have not just memories from their crimes but the actual physical keepsakes of what they've done. Now, this is not uncommon among serial killers, but we won't be discussing violent crimes today. Instead, we're taking a look at a type of crime where keepsakes are the whole point of the crime. Artists. And Yes, I chose to use the picture of Dorian Gray as my accessible allusion into the episode about art heists instead of, you know, Ocean's 8. On November 27th, 1985, the day after Thanksgiving, a couple walked into the University of Arizona Museum of Art. They walked out with one of the museum's most valuable pieces a 1955 painting by the abstract expressionist William de Kooning entitled Woman Ochre. It was not an overly complicated heist, but it was a successful one. The painting would not be found for over three decades. Museum staff thought that they might never see the painting for themselves. The only thing they had were two old photographs of the artwork. But then something miraculous happened something that very rarely happens with art crimes a phone call came to the front desk of the art museum someone somewhere had found the missing painting this is the story of the theft and recovery of woman ochre Before we get into the theft itself, which is a deeply fascinating story in its own right, let's learn about Woman Ochre herself. I think that knowing a little bit more about the place this picture occupies in art history really adds to the story. This was not a random painting that was snatched. Now, I am not an art scholar in any way, shape, or form, so I will try to explain this the best I can. In the mid-20th century, art started getting weird. This new style, which has since been labeled abstract expressionism, fully rejected the real and the literal. Possibly the most famous artist from this time was Jackson Pollock. Everyone can picture a Jackson Pollock with his signature wild and free splatters of paint on the canvas. But you might not be able to picture de Kooning so easily especially if you are, like me, not very knowledgeable of the art world, which actually ended up making this episode a fun challenge. I definitely learned a lot researching this episode. For instance, Pollock and de Kooning are considered by some to be the fathers of abstract expressionism, which is arguably the most important artistic movement in the American 20th century. UA Museum of Art curator Olivia Miller, who has a wonderful and vast knowledge of art, spoke to me about the painting.
1: So de Kooning um, had a very long career as an artist and went through many different phases as an artist, um, but Woman Ochre is um, a highlight because it comes from his Woman series. Um, this wasn't sort of a formal series that he did because he he did many, many women paintings. It's almost impossible to count them. But these have have become his most recognized paintings because they were the ones that were quite shocking to the art world when he first um, showed them in a gallery. Um, Because at this time he was really with artists who were, you know, going purely abstract and kind of abandoning the figure. And he found a way to sort of revisit that. Or I guess I should say he never fully left it.
0: Now, This is an audio-based platform, so obviously I can't just show you a picture of a de Kooning. But if you look up his work, you'll see thick, bold lines, expressive color, and no real shapes. Until you get to his women's series, which, as Olivia said, may or may not have been an official series in de Kooning's mind. During the 1950s, de Kooning returned to form, at least marginally, When he began to paint figures of what were clearly women. This was controversial at the time. Jackson Pollock reportedly considered it a betrayal of everything the abstract expressionist movement stood for. De Kooning finished Woman Ochre in 1955. The painting was acquired by Edward Joseph Gallagher Jr., a wealthy art lover who donated hundreds of works to the UA Museum of Art, mostly pieces from the abstract expressionist movement. According to the Arizona Republic, when Gallagher donated the art, it came on the condition that the museum could not sell or give away any of the works. They had to remain at the University of Arizona. Before I get into the crime itself, I just want to say that this case has been extensively covered. It would be nearly impossible to identify where I first heard each detail of the heist, so I want to give a blanket note of deep appreciation for reporters at the Daily Wildcat, Arizona Public Media, the Arizona Republic, the Arizona Daily Star, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. I also attended a lecture by Olivia Miller, which greatly helped my understanding of the case. It was the morning after Thanksgiving, 1985. Presumably, the campus was not as busy with students as it usually is, given how many choose to go home over the holiday. And art museums aren't known to be bustling centers of activity, even during the busiest of times. But on that morning, the museum had two unique visitors. One a man in his twenties with dark brown hair, a mustache, and glasses. The other... An older woman, maybe in her fifties, with reddish hair, glasses, and a scarf tied around her head. The two were wearing large coats, and it's been suggested that these may have been disguises. They entered the museum at around 9 a.m., right as the building opened. They actually weren't really supposed to be in there yet, but when a guard led in a staff member, the couple followed— The man went upstairs, while the woman stopped to talk to the security guard in the stairwell. They only spoke for a little while, before the man came down and the pair left in a hurry. Witnesses later say the couple drove off in a rust-colored car, but no license plate number could be identified. The guard reportedly found this encounter strange, so he went upstairs and was greeted with an empty frame where woman ochre once hung. The search for the stolen painting began, but unfortunately, police had almost nothing to go on. They determined that the painting had been, rather messily, cut out of its frame, but no fingerprints were recovered from the scene. The theft occurred in 1985, just before DNA evidence would first begin to be used in criminal investigations, and before security cameras became the norm. The description of the couple that i mentioned earlier led to a pair of police sketches that were the closest thing investigators had to a photo in fact there were hardly any photos of the artwork itself the museum had only two photos of woman ochre one had a very blue tint to it obscuring the yellows and reds that give woman ochre its name there was another photo that showed the colors of the painting more accurately but lost most of the details of the piece, including de Kooning's line work. Nowadays, he works as chief of police for the UAPD, but in 1985, Brian Seastone was one of the first officers on the scene after the heist.
2: One of the first things we did was notify the FBI and ask for their assistance. Because of the art theft and the possibility of it leaving the state or even the country, Uh, and their vast resources. We contacted them for their assistance. They came in and and helped us right away.
0: But even with help from federal law enforcement, there was very little progress in the case. No leads and no evidence meant there was nowhere to go. After the theft, the museum staff desperately wanted the painting back, according to reports. At the time, the museum was offering a $10,000 reward for the return of the painting, on the condition that it be undamaged and not a forgery, which was a serious concern at the time. $10,000 in 1985 would be about $24,000 in today's money. Remember, this was a painting reportedly worth about $400,000, which would be equivalent to nearly $1 million in today's money. The museum ended up getting a rather large insurance payout, which they used to pay for better security. This was something museum staff had been reportedly asking for for years. However, officers and museum staff, both then and now, have been hesitant to explain exactly what changes were made, probably to avoid future thefts. According to registrar Kristen Schmidt, who has worked at the museum since 2011, the theft left a lasting mark on the way security is handled at the museum. was like a major, major event
3: in the museum's history. Um, it, it, like, there, there's a before and after. I remember the head of security here, when I started, you know, would talk about different policies and procedures in our security and, you know, like, oh, we can't do, we don't do it that way anymore because the de Kooning got stolen. It became a benchmark of some sort.
0: As we've heard, from the beginning, the FBI was involved in the investigation. UAPD asked them to get involved in the case because of their knowledge of the specialized crime of art theft.
2: We're very fortunate. We've always had a wonderful working relationship um, with the FBI and many of our federal partners. Back then, it it was a little bit different because, again, we didn't have a whole bunch of leads. They are always very helpful, and they kept this case open all these years. Uh, pretty much like we did, just in hopes that one day it would reappear.
0: You see, there are very few people who are trained to investigate art crimes, even nowadays. In the United States, art crimes, generally art heists, forgeries, or cultural thefts, are handled by the FBI. And for a high-profile case like this one, the theft would be investigated by the FBI art crime team. In fact, That team is the one still looking into the woman ochre theft today, as it is an active investigation. Which is why many of the details regarding the investigation are not yet available. But we can still look into how art crimes in general are investigated. The FBI established the art crime team in 2004, which was surprisingly recent, at least to me. According to their website, one of the main reasons for the establishment of a formal team was to combat the extensive looting of important cultural property that was happening in Baghdad after the invasion of Iraq. Nowadays, the team is able to rapidly respond to major art or cultural thefts. The team is small, with only about 20 agents on it. In 1985, before the establishment of an official team, the FBI did already have agents specially trained to handle art crimes. But art crimes are considered notoriously difficult to investigate, and even more difficult to solve. Estimates vary, but from what I have read, between 1 and 10% of art thefts will be solved. Again, that's between 1 and 10%. And it's not like art thefts are uncommon. The FBI also runs the National Stolen Art File, which is a database of major missing works of art, both in the U.S. and abroad. I could not find an exact number for how many works are in there, but the database goes on for 57 pages. Interestingly, art crimes are considered violent crimes by the FBI, or at least by their website, so I guess I kind of lied at the beginning of this episode. But for someone who is not a member of the art world, as I myself am not, this may be difficult to understand. Some art theft experts, such as Robert K. Whitman, who was one of the FBI's top art crime investigators until his retirement in 2008, have suggested that one of the reasons art crime is notoriously difficult to investigate, and especially difficult to solve, is because it is considered a victimless crime, as he told the New York Times in 2010. But to call it a victimless crime is not quite true. It's actually sort of the opposite of true. Because when art is taken from a place where it is free or nearly free to be enjoyed by all, then all of us are the ones who are affected by the crime. The impact
1: is, um, it's huge. Um, It's huge on the staff. You know, people who work at museums are not there for the money. (laughs) They're, They're there because they really have... A love of education. They have a love of art. They have a love of sharing art with the world. They're entrusted, you know, by the public to care for the collection for the benefit of everybody. And so to have that that mission and responsibility be violated it's not far different from how you would feel having you know your your home broken into where you feel very violated you know it's the same thing it's definitely a loss it's robbing the public of an opportunity to have access to art that's a really important thing particularly for a city like tucson that you know it's not it's not new york in the sense that we don't have you know countless museums to go to you know it's really special to have the museums we have here Um, that are there for the public, and we want to be able to show, you know, as much art as possible to everybody.
0: Now, despite what Hollywood tells us, most art heists are not elaborate affairs full of genius criminal masterminds, people descending from ceilings, and a team of fabulously dressed thieves. In fact, most art crimes are not really pulled off by professional thieves at all. Someone connected to the museum is usually involved. This makes the theft of woman ochre something of an anomaly, because, as far as I know, the museum staff was never suspected. Another reason it's an anomaly? Because 32 years later, it was solved. In an article that ran in the Daily Wildcat on December 4th, 1985, the director of the UA Museum of Art at the time, Peter Birmingham, was quoted as saying, quote, I'm basically a hopeful person. We have a really good chance of eventual recovery. There's a 50-50 chance next week. Someday we will recover it." End quote. Brian Seastone also remembered being optimistic that it would be found.
2: I always had a feeling that one day it would, we would find it. I just had that from, from the very first day because there's uh, a lot of stories around how art that's been missing for a number of years Uh, gets found as a result of a death, a police investigation, or uh, some other means. I just always had that feeling.
0: Kristen Schmidt said that people at the museum, including herself, really could not seem to decide whether or not to believe that the painting would be found.
3: I myself went back and forth um like part of me was like oh yeah we're, we're totally going to get this painting back and it's going to be great and you know uh, and then we'll all live happily ever after um and then part of me was like there's no way this was planned so well and you know really well executed you know this was uh, professionals they're, they're going to spirit this painting away, and we'll never see it again. It's maybe somewhere in the Middle East or something. As for other people, I'm not sure. There were sort of several leads uh, over the years. Um, like, people would call in with tips to the front desk or to different staff members, and, you know, everything would be followed up on. And, of course, it, it never turned out.
0: The leads dried up, and there was really nowhere to go from there. So museum staff carried on with their lives. According to Seastone, though the case was open, it went cold very quickly. So for 30 years, people kept the memory of the case alive, while the investigation was at a standstill. During her lecture, Olivia mentioned that after about 30 years is a good time to start reinvestigating an art theft, because it's long enough later that the original thieves may have passed away, meaning the painting has to change hands. So on the 30th anniversary of the theft, the museum held an event all about art crime to reinvigorate the public's interest in the theft. And it worked. The media picked up the story, and people were talking about woman ochre again. And two years later, that revival in coverage would play a role in the return of the painting. In August 2017, David Van Ocker, who, along with Buck Burns and Rick Johnson, owns Manzanita Ridge Furniture and Antiques, purchased the estate of a woman who had recently passed away in Cliff, New Mexico. He bought the whole of her estate, which included many works of art, for a total of $2,000. Inside the house, behind the door to the bedroom of the woman and her husband, who had passed away in 2012, David found a unique-looking painting. He took it back to Manzanita Ridge, located in Silver City, New Mexico, and put it up in his shop. According to reports, one of David's regular customers walked in and told them that he had a real de Kooning on his hands. But David dismissed this. After all, it had been found behind the door in a house not far from them. But the day went on, and person after person told him that that was a genuine de Kooning. One person even offered him $200,000 right there for the painting. Getting nervous, David locked the painting in the store's bathroom, which was the only room in the building with a lock on it. Then he began to do some research. He found an article from the Arizona Republic about the 30th anniversary of the theft. And that's when he realized exactly what he had in his possession. So he called the museum. Olivia Miller remembers that day very well. She described it for me. Now this clip will be a little longer than usual, but trust me, it is well worth it.
1: So I got the call um, on a Thursday. It was probably like you know two in the afternoon or something like that. And I was um, I was speaking with my coworker downstairs in my office, and we heard the security guard who was at the front desk. She had answered the phone, and she was paging our our other head of security and um and she said hey Jim I have a man on the line who says he has our stolen painting and my co-worker and I just looked at each other and our eyes got really big and um and her name is Jill and she said oh my god are we gonna remember this moment for the rest of our lives and she got very excited <laughs> And then they transferred the phone call to me and um, of course I answered the phone and like I said, you know, he said, my name is David Van Acker and I found this article from 2015 and I bought some items at an estate sale and I, I have your painting, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the article and I'm looking at your painting and I know that they're the same thing. And then he said, there are lines across it as if it's been rolled up. And so that was the thing that really stood out to me. And of course we we would have followed up in any way we could with him, but that was that was the thing that really made me think that he he had it. So I asked him to send photos, which um, you know he started emailing those right away. And every photo that came in just made us more and more excited that this that this did look like it was the painting. And then when he sent us the dimensions, you know, it was only an inch off, you know, which corresponded to it being cut from its frame. After he started emailing me photos, we decided, okay, this is, we we need to contact um, the U of A police department.
0: Kristen also remembered how she first heard about the recovery, and she approached the situation with skepticism. After all, how likely was it really that after 32 years, their painting had just turned up in a second-hand store in New Mexico? It's
3: funny, I was actually overseas that day, and so I was on my way back, or about to head back, from Germany to the United States, very late at night, you know, my time in Germany, and Jill McClary, our archivist and currently our acting head, she texted me in all caps. She said, can I call you right now? And, you know, it's midnight, and and I was like, I was up, so I said, sure, why not? And then she, she called me, and she was a little bit breathless. Um, because they had all been, you know, talking about um, what had happened here at the museum. But I actually wasn't on site here when the phone call came in. You know, she was talking about how, well, because I hadn't seen any pictures yet. You know, I'd only had this phone conversation. And so she and Olivia and others had seen the pictures that David had uh, transmitted to them. And so they had actually, you know, a little bit of backup (coughs) to to the thing, whereas I'm just hearing it cold. And I'm thinking, yeah, there's no way. This is, this is some nut job, you know, calling the museum, wanting some attention. And, and, and from what, what I understood was they were already, the museum staff were already um, tentatively making plans to get in the car and drive to uh, Silver City to pick the painting up. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Hold on. You've got to call the FBI. You've got to call UAPD. You need to, you know, clear it with people before, before anything happens.
0: As Olivia and Kristen said, law enforcement was immediately notified. Brian Seastone remembered that day as well. Now, remember, Seastone has been with this case since the very beginning. Here's what he said about that morning.
2: Interesting day, I was actually in Hawaii. It was about four o'clock in the morning there and the phone rang and uh, was asked if I knew about the painting. And I'm what are you talking about? And then they said that it had possibly been located. And uh, with that, I was wide awake and was on the phone uh, back here with uh, university personnel, law enforcement in uh, New Mexico, as well as the FBI, to figure out what needed to be done, how we best secure this, and make sure that it really was the painting that we thought it was.
0: After that initial phone call with David and a follow-up phone call with law enforcement, Olivia was instructed not to have any more contact with David while the investigation was taking place. Any side conversations could have hampered the investigation. So she waited. Olivia said that the silence was the hardest part. She worried that David would realize how much money the painting was worth and change his mind about giving it back. Remember, this is an incredibly valuable painting. Articles that came out around the time of the recovery estimated the painting to be worth over $100 million in 2017. Olivia has said that that number quoted by the media is exaggerated, but it is still very, very valuable. Eventually, she was able to speak to David again, who told her that he just wanted to give the painting back to the museum. He had moved it to a friend's house for safekeeping, and the original plan was to have him drive the painting to Tucson.
1: Things didn't quite work out that way. We ended up having to drive to Silver City the next, or that later that evening. And so Friday evening, we set out at about six o'clock and drove to Silver City. And David had um, taken the painting to an acquaintance's house for safekeeping because the FBI told him, you know, you need it out of your house and out of your store. Everybody in Silver City knows you have it. But anyway, we got there and, um, and they were having a party and all these people had you know cameras and video cameras and um, it was a very lively scene that we certainly didn't expect. But, but that was when we saw the painting. So it was probably like 11 o'clock at night by the time we actually got to the painting. And at that moment, we, um, we packed it up and then um, it was stored at the, the sheriff's station there over the weekend. And then on the following Monday, it came back to the museum.
0: On the way back, the painting was stored in a crate in the nondescript minivan that the museum's staff were in, which received a full police escort. Kristen recalled the nerve-wracking drive. The driving back to Tucson, we just used our
3: acting uh, director's uh, minivan. The, the crate was in the back of her minivan. We were in a, a convoy of, like, five different cars. Including New Mexico State Troopers, Grant County Sheriff, UAPD, and eventually, once we crossed the border, we lost the New Mexico State Troopers and picked up Arizona State Troopers. Yeah, that was that was a pretty intense drive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was able to be in the in the minivan with our with our acting director, and she claims that it was a pretty calm drive. But I could see her and her white knuckles on that um, on the steering wheel.
0: After 32 years woman ochre had returned home, or so everyone was hoping. The painting still had to be authenticated, which was a two-part process. Firstly, the museum staff had to determine if it really was the painting that had been cut out of the frame.
1: And so to do that, we asked um, Nancy Odegaard, who is the chief conservator at the Arizona State Museum here on campus and a world-renowned expert conservator her specialty is objects conservation, so she was not going to conserve the painting. We asked her to come in to, to essentially give an overall sort of condition report and also to help us determine that it was the same painting. With a painting, um, particularly one as damaged as that one, you know, we were never going to remove the frame without having a conservator present because you don't want to inflict further damage, and so it was really essential that she was here. So that took about two hours for her to give um, the sort of overall inspection, and um, and we were able to remove the frame and match it up with the remnants and, and confirm that it was the same painting.
0: I recommend looking up videos of the authentication process on YouTube. I will tweet out the link to a YouTube playlist I made while researching this episode. It has all of the best videos from the Woman Ochre search and recovery. It is truly amazing to see how exact the edges of the found painting match up with the cut edges from the original frame. For Kristen, the authentication process was the first time she was able to see the painting herself. It was really the first time the world would get to see the painting since 1985, as the event was filmed.
3: I'm unpacking and viewing the painting just like for the first time in full, like, basically in the spotlight, it felt like I was on a stage a little bit because I knew that there were cameras rolling and catching, you know, every moment of that. And so when I finally got to look at it, I was actually overcome. Like it really, it really seemed like the real thing to me. So I, I I got a little emotional, but I kept it together at that moment. But yeah, there have been a lot of moments when I haven't kept it quite so together.
0: But there was a second part to the authentication process that had to be done as well. How did they know they had a genuine de Kooning on their hands? After all, it had been 30 years. What if the stolen painting itself had been a fake?
1: So we had to collect the paper trail from that. And then an art historian that the FBI was working with, who has to remain anonymous, did um, authenticate the painting and confirm that it was a de Kooning. Because that would have been embarrassing <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to go through all of that drama and have it not be a de Kooning.
0: And so Woman Ochre, had finally come home. The painting would not get to stay at UA, however. In the 30 years since it had disappeared, the painting had incurred serious damage. There were large holes in the canvas, it had been placed in a horrendous frame, and it had been rolled up, either during the theft or during its transportation, which caused creases in the painting. Currently, woman ochre is at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, California, undergoing conservation work. Because of woman ochre's unique journey, it provides a chance for conservationists to really study how best to repair a painting. Scientific analysis is being done, as well as artistic operations, to restore woman ochre to de Kooning's intended form. Museum staff are currently unsure about what to do with woman ochre when the painting returns to the museum. Given its incredible history,
1: it's complicated because um, I mean, no matter what, the story of the theft is going to carry through to the end of time. You know, um, as long as this painting is there, you know, the theft will be part of its story, and that's something that we can't erase. And it's not necessarily something that we want to shy away from or not tell anymore. At the same time, we don't want it to be the only story. You know, that was not the reason that the donor gave it to the museum. Um, there's a lot of value in having a de Kooning painting here on campus that goes far beyond its story of being stolen and returned. And so want people to understand its value as an art object. And... Um, and understand de Kooning's process, and, and also learn about conservation. You know, we're, we're thinking about all the options, you know, will it be an exhibit on art crime? Will it be an exhibit on de Kooning? Will it just be returning the de Kooning back to the museum, you know, with its with its friends, you could say, um, and, just, and just rehanging it with a permanent collection? We haven't quite solidified an answer, and it's possible that we'll do multiple things, too.
0: Now that the painting has been recovered, the biggest question that remains in the case is a classic one Who done it? Who were the pair of thieves who cut Woman Ochre out of her frame and drove away on that fall day in 1985? From what I've read, immediately after the heist, investigators had their suspects, but those leads quickly dried up. In the years since the painting was found again, many people seem content to just have the painting back. None of the people I spoke to for the story brought up the question of who could have done this. Law enforcement may still very well be looking into possible suspects, though they cannot discuss the details of an active case. But suspicion, at least in the public sphere, has fallen squarely on the couple who had the painting hanging up in their bedroom for years. Now, before I get into the couple's lives and why so much suspicion has fallen on them, let me make it clear that one Both of them are dead, and therefore cannot defend themselves from the public scrutiny they have come under, and two, the couple has never been formally charged with any crime, even posthumously. Jerry and Rita Atler were not what you would picture if I asked you to think of who would own a stolen masterpiece. They lived a quiet life in the small community in New Mexico. They had friends, but generally kept to themselves according to various reports. Jerry worked for many years as a music teacher at public schools in New York City. Rita worked as a speech pathologist. Not exactly what you might consider a high-rolling lifestyle, though they were known to take many vacations, apparently visiting all seven continents. This detail, of the couple's many trips, is one that has been used to imply that the Atlers may not have been as squeaky clean as people thought. Now, as I have said, since the painting's recovery, the Atlers have become the prime suspects, at least in the public's eye. We don't know whether exactly they are considered official suspects by law enforcement. And members of the museum staff have generally abstained from commenting on who potential suspects could be. However, I found several articles that speculate whether or not the Atlers could have been the ones to take the painting. There is some circumstantial evidence that does not look great. For one thing, many people have argued that photos of the couple from 1985 bear a striking similarity to the police sketches of the art thieves. Personally, I do see a resemblance, though Rita's age would not have matched the suspect in her 50s at the time. The couple drove a red car similar in description to the one that sped away from the museum. But wait, you might be saying, the Atlers lived in New York. What would they have been doing in Tucson? Well, since the recovery of the painting, the Arizona Republic has uncovered photos that show the Atlers in Tucson on Thanksgiving 1985. So we know they were in town. And what might be the most damning evidence that the Atlers may have been the ones behind the heist was a short story that Jerry himself published in 2011 called The Eye of the Jaguar. The story, as well as the couple, was described very well by Washington Post reporter Antonia Nori farzan in a 2008 article that speculates whether or not the Atlers could have been the ones behind the theft. Jerry's short story was about a team of thieves, a grandmother and a granddaughter, who plot to steal a priceless emerald from a museum. After the theft, the pair leave the museum in a hurry, and the security guard checks the display, only to find the emerald missing. The thieves hide the emerald away, and are never caught. The ending line from the short story has, in particular, raised eyebrows for how closely it would mirror the cooning theft if Jerry and Rita were indeed the ones who stole it. The story ends, quote, And two pairs of eyes, exclusively, are there to see. End quote. All of these clues have come together to cause some people to rather emphatically believe that Jerry and Rita were the ones who stole woman ochre from the museum themselves, as opposed to buying it from the real robbers. There is an even wilder theory out there that accuses the Atlers of being serial art thieves, this theory has mainly been discussed on both Reddit and in a truly questionable documentary by WFAA, a TV station owned by ABC, which you can watch on YouTube if you so choose. The theory essentially states that the Atlers regularly stole art and presumably resold it to pay for their vacations. But they kept woman ochre for their own enjoyment. Some people even suspect that they may be behind the largest museum theft in United States history, the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist, which you can learn more about in a podcast called Last Seen, which was produced by WBUR and the Boston Globe and was an inspiration for today's episode. Now, there is really no evidence beyond speculation to support this wild theory, but the absence of any new development in the case since the painting's recovery has left imaginations to run wild. There is one other piece of potential evidence that suggests that Jerry and Rita were the ones behind the heist. According to a 2018 article from Insurance Journal written by James Tarmy, stealing is the easy part of an art heist. That was made clear in The Woman Ogre Theft, in which the thieves walked in and walked out with the painting in less than 20 minutes, never to be caught. And granted, that was in 1985, before security cameras and DNA testing became widely used, but art heists are still going on today. And as I said earlier, these crimes are rarely solved. However, the selling of stolen art is a much more difficult endeavor. For one thing, no legitimate art museum or collector would ever consider a stolen painting. Olivia described the intense care that museums take to ensure that they only purchase real paintings from good sources. Particular attention is paid to the provenance, which is the record of where a piece of art has been, sort of like a timeline of ownership.
1: So the process is kind of varied. I mean, first and foremost, you definitely want the most um, documentation of provenance that you can get. Um, which in certain cases can be quite complicated, particularly if an artwork is um, by a minor artist, or if an artwork is by an artist who didn't keep great records, and so there's no, um, you know, archive from which to work from. A lot of individual sales can be tricky because perhaps somebody in the family was friends with the artist, bought the artwork, and there, there wouldn't necessarily be a receipt or a paper trail for that. You know, so it's, it's definitely provenance is a very complicated issue, but whenever possible you want to be able to have that that trail. And if you're if you're buying from a reputable gallery or auction house, they will ideally check the art loss register or the national stolen art file to to ensure that whatever they're selling is not stolen.
0: And there is no organized black market for art. Shockingly, Hollywood has lied to us about how easy it is to find a buyer for expensive treasures of the art world. In fact, the more famous a painting is, the harder it is to sell the work, because of all the attention from law enforcement and the media. Often, if thieves do not already have a buyer lined up before the heist, they will end up not being able to sell the painting at all. The number one way law enforcement officers catch art thieves is when the thieves start to get desperate to make a profit off their job and arrange to sell the art to an undercover officer or ransom the museum for the art. Or, as former FBI agent Robert Whitman told NBC News in 2016, quote, criminals are better thieves than businessmen, end quote. Additionally, art thieves are not known to be art lovers. But the Attlers were. Their home was full of art when they died, including the de Kooning, which they had hung up behind their bedroom door. The story of Woman Ochre is not yet over, though this podcast almost is. No, her story is still being unraveled as conservation work is continuing and law enforcement keeps investigating. And of course, I hope that she has a long story ahead of her, as one day she will likely be displayed for the public to enjoy again. Already, we have enjoyed her story a great deal. I asked my three sources about why they think this story captivated the public's attention so much. Brian Seastone said that the story of Woman Ochre has become entangled into the story of the University of Arizona itself.
2: It occurred here. It becomes part of kind of a, a... Folklore history. On the 30th anniversary uh, of the theft, it got additional publicity, etc. You know, this thing's been gone 30 years, we haven't given up. And then a uh, year or two later, all of a sudden, here it is again. So it just shows what perseverance, people caring, keeping their eyes open, and doing the right thing can do.
0: Kristen Schmidt also thought the way it all came together in the end had something to do with it as well as the intrigue and mystery that lasted for 32 years well
3: there's a lot of drama you know from the original theft to the recovery um to the just like the extreme like generosity of the people who recovered it and returned it to the museum it's like the basis of a movie plot i mean it's it's a mis- it's been a mystery for 32 years and now people believe they have solved it. It's, it's just like high drama in real life. And also, lastly, it never happens. You never, like it hardly ever happens that you get art recovered again. And the fact that this one, you know, is a very high profile piece by, a, you know, a very well-known artist, uh, that just adds to
0: it. And Olivia Miller pointed out the way that the story ends is a nice change of pace from all the unsolved crimes out there at least this story has a happy ending
1: um i think there's sort of a a lore and mystique to art theft, things like um, the movies, you know, Indiana Jones and Thomas Crown Affair, you know, there's there's been a lot of, you know, just uh, popular books and popular movies that have been focused on the theme of art crime, and um, and I think people are fascinated by the world's treasures and, and kind of the movement of them. You know, in this particular case, it's, it's a wonderful story, you know, in that it has a happy ending, and that's not the case for most art thefts, you know, most of them do go unsolved, and, um, and this is sort of this miraculous thing that really becomes the story. Story of human redemption and I think that has really excited people in a day where um, most of the news we read is bad or depressing and um, you know this is something that that shows that good news can happen
0: with whatever combination of factors it's undoubtedly true that the story of woman ochre is an incredible one and yet one with so many holes and mysteries still in it
2: I've said this many times since its recovery, we don't know where she's been, but she has a fantastic story to tell if she could ever talk.
0: (laughs) We may never know the full story of Woman Ochre, but what I would give to know what it was like during those 32 years. Day after day after day, hidden away behind a bedroom door in a house in New Mexico with only two people to enjoy her strange beauty. A secret reminder for a crime, old, unspoken, but never forgotten. For the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio, this has been Wildcat Crime. Thank you all for listening. Till next time. ¶¶ you for listening to this episode of wildcat crime if you liked it and want to hear more from us in the future please make sure to rate review subscribe and tell your friends and follow us on social media we're on instagram and twitter at wildcat crime pod feel free to message us with questions comments or episode ideas you can also reach us by emailing our new email address wildcatcrime at dailywildcat.com This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Vanessa Ontiveros. Recorded in Camp Studios. Our logo was designed by Nick Trujillo. Our music was Ghost Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Special thanks to everyone at Camp Student Radio. Special thanks to everyone at the Daily Wildcat. And a very special thanks to everyone who appeared on the podcast today. Olivia Miller, Kristen Schmidt, and Brian Seastone. Once again... Thank you all for listening. This has been Wildcat Crime. Till next time.